Lord, you have raised up your son from the grave and have seated him on high at your right hand. We pray that he might pour out his spirit now upon us, that we might be lifted up in our hearts, in our minds, to things above. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a sermon about vanity. The book of Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book, famously opens like this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Or the old translation, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. For this teacher, the inevitability of death casts a shadow over everything we do. For everything good that we might gain will be taken away from us at death. All our labours will be emptied out, even our labours to become wise. Here is what he says later in chapter 2. He says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool... The wise, too, must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. To the teacher, the human beings have no advantage over the animals. He says, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so they may see they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. The teacher is reflecting on natural life in natural bodies. Life as it is lived on earth, as it exists today all around us, which we participate in, is reflecting on mortal life, temporary, ephemeral life. And the teacher found this fleeting nature of life hard. It seemed to him to empty life out and make it vain in the end. Now, others have suggested that It is the fleeting nature of life that makes it meaningful. A favourite childhood book of mine, A Wizard of Earthsea, has this epigraph uh, in the frontispiece. Only in silence the word, only in dark the light, only in dying life, bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. So the thought of that little poem is just as 
A word that makes sense needs to exist in a silence, a before and an after silence. So also a life that makes sense needs to exist in a death so that it has a before and an after. Now, if it is true that our lives are meaningful because they end, then that is an objection to the Christian hope of resurrection, which rejoices at the prospect that death will not be the end, but renewed life will swallow up death. These are the issues we're thinking about today, or we have been thinking about over the last three weeks. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians 15, a long discourse on the Christian hope of resurrection. Week one, we had the resurrection of Christ as a foundational claim for all Christian preaching right from the beginning. There is no Christianity without Christ and his resurrection. Secondly, week two, the resurrection of Christ is the first step in God's program to redeem the world and achieve what he originally intended for his creation. And today, week three, the new bodily life that comes through Christ and the way that it fits us for life in his kingdom. So today I have a sermon in three parts. Firstly, a new objection. Secondly, a new principle of bodily life. And thirdly, a new sense of the meaningfulness of what we do. So let's begin with the new objection. A new objection to the teaching about resurrection comes up in the passage in Paul treats. Today's passage from 1 Corinthians 15 opens with Paul saying, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Perhaps the person asking such questions is thinking of resurrection as a kind of resuscitation, a return to live again in in the kind of bodies we have now, in a world much like the one that we experience now. The problem with this is that it would not really solve the problems of our current bodily life, our mortality, our weakness, our vulnerability. Would you really rejoice at the prospect of living again the life of this world? You know, great as life is, is also a thing that people may choose not to repeat. You say to someone, would you like to go back and be 13 again or 20 again? And people reflect and say... Actually, I'm kind of glad some of that bad stuff is behind me now and the thought of having to go through some of the experiences again is not all that appealing. There are some not-so-great bits about life in this world that although we enjoy life, we're also glad to leave some of it behind. And so if there's going to be a new life, a resurrected body, is it just going to be more of the same, more of the same difficulty more of the same suffering, more of the same meaninglessness even. Paul's reply to the question emphasises the transformation that is involved in resurrection, beginning with the image of a transformation from seed to plant. So verse 37, he says, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Seed and plant are organically connected. They are the unfolding of one continuous organism. And yet there is a a death 
in the midst of this unfolding, a burial in the earth, a disappearance from view. And what comes forth following that death is a profoundly transformed body, fit for a new kind of life. And Paul applies this image to the resurrection of our bodies. In verse 42, he says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And so here the second point I want to make is that the resurrection is the working of a new principle of bodily life, a new power of bodily life. When Paul says there, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, what does he mean? What is a natural body? What is a spiritual body? Well, the word translated natural is elsewhere translated worldly or even without the spirit, unspiritual. It's not a straightforward word to match to one English word. But a natural body is a body whose principle of life is the life of this world, the animal life, the earthly life, the mortal life. A spiritual body is not a ghostly body, an immaterial body, a bodiless body. No, rather it is a body whose principle and source of life is not the natural source of life, but is the life of the resurrection, the life of the resurrected Jesus. That is the power that animates the spiritual body. Paul again turns to holding up... um, Adam and Jesus beside each other, as he did in last week's passage. Adam embodies the life of this age, the life of the natural body. We read at the end of verse 44, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's a quote from Genesis 2. The first man, Adam, became, you might say, a living nature. Is natural. <clears throat> Jesus, who is the last Adam, embodies a different kind of life in his resurrection, the life of the age to come, the life of the spiritual body. So is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, a living nature, but the last man, so the last Adam, that is Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The kind of life that animates the spiritual body is the life given through Jesus Christ, the life of his spirit, the life that swallows up death in victory. In bringing his creation to its intended goal, God will work a profound transformation upon it and upon us who belong to him. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that is, die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the sound of Christ's return. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality." So this profound 
transformation that the resurrection is, is a mystery. It's something that is hidden, that will be revealed. It's not resuscitation. It's not a return to the kind of life that we have now. But neither is it disembodied. It is a bodily life that is animated by a new principle, a new power, a new source of life. A life that transforms us just as sowing and germination transforms the seed. That is in a a radical way for a new mode of living. So there is a kind of body that those raised from death will be given. Paul has an answer to the question about bodies. It's not a detailed and exhaustive answer. He acknowledges there's something mysterious and unseen about it. But there is enough to indicate that our bodies will be radically changed by the resurrection. But we will indeed be raised. There's something else, though, that Paul sees in the resurrection, and that is an answer to the problem of vanity, of meaninglessness. So here's the third point. The hope of resurrection means that our labour, our life in this world, is not in vain. It's not meaningless. Paul brings this whole chapter to a close with a call for Christians to believe in what we do here and now, to give ourselves to it. Verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Because God is redeeming this world, what happens in this world is not lost in oblivion. Our lives in this world are the seed from which our life in God's redeemed, remade world will grow. The teacher of Ecclesiastes found the work he did in this world deeply unsatisfying. He says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person would be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. And so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. You know, we might set out to build something for the future, something the next generation can take further. But will they take it further? And what will, and will what we do and pour ourselves into really be what the future needs? And since, you know, we'll never know how all this goes, whether those who come after us will take what we do and do a good thing with it, whether it was really going to help in the long term, we would just... We're in the grave, we'll never know. So how can we stay motivated to strive and sacrifice for such a thing? So I saw, says the teacher, that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. Got to enjoy it here and now. Can't think about the future. For, he says, who can bring them to see what will happen after them? But... The promise of resurrection brings a new perspective. There is a kind of work that has a future, the work of the Lord. What is this work, the work that has a future? I want to suggest that the work of the Lord is 
Action that flows from faith. So, it is the work of repentance to start with. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, said Jesus. It's the work of putting off our sins, putting on love and all the virtues of holiness. And the work of repentance is not in vain. Because the character that we work to develop here will be raised up there. Love of fellow Christians is not in vain. This too is the action that flows from faith. It's the work of the Lord. It's obedience to Jesus' command to his disciples, love one another. So when you turn up, uh, when you turn up for your fellow believers, when you attend to them, when you speak and act for their benefit, when you bring your gifts to share with them, when you serve them as you're able, this is not in vain. The community of love that we build here will be raised up there. Love of neighbour is not in vain. This too is the action that flows from faith. It's the work of the Lord. It's obedience to that great command, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. So doing good, honouring others, blessing those who persecute, not taking revenge, doing no harm, being salt and light in the world, this is not in vain. The good we do here will be raised up there. Christian mission is not in vain. This too is the action that flows from faith, the work of the Lord. Go and make disciples of every nation, said Jesus. Sometimes mission may seem slow and ineffectual, hardly anything happens. Sometimes mission is hard because it's unwelcome. People might be hostile, but it is not in vain. The good news of Jesus that we share here will swell the crowds of those who are raised up there. If our lives are finally and forever extinguished in silence, darkness, death and emptiness, then the brief word that they speak, the fleeting light that they shine, the momentary arc that they fly may strike others as meaningful, perhaps, as they contemplate it from their own perspective, but our own extinction cannot make our lives meaningful to us. Death is not our friend. I started with the Clive James poem two weeks ago. Let's have a bit more Clive James, who wrote poetry reflecting on his own death. This is from The Gardener in White. He says, The reaper sobers you. You'll be stirred by just how serious you tend to get when he draws near and has his quiet word. His murmur is the closest you've heard yet to someone heavy calling in a debt. Death is a debt collector. He's not your friend. But resurrection is our friend. And Jesus, through whom it comes, is our friend. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he 
gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory that our Lord Jesus Christ has won over death in his resurrection and the transformation that works even now on our attitude to our life in this world. Help us, Lord, to give ourselves fully to the work that you give us to do, the work of repentance, the work of love, the work of mission, knowing that these things are never in vain. Lord, we also pray that you would give us good hope, even as we face death, that unwelcome debt collector, that we would face death in the hope of the resurrection, that indeed in Jesus, death has been swallowed up in victory. We give you thanks for this, in Jesus' name. Amen.